Please stand with me if you're able and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Our reading this morning will be verses 32 through 42. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. That's for the Lord's help. Spirit of God, we pray for your help. To see our Lord before us, our Christ, your Christ, our, your Christ, your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Son of Man, the King of Kings. And what he endured, knowing what he was going to face on this night in the text before us. Help us to see and understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been about a year and a half that we commenced our study in Gospels, in, in the Gospel of Mark. Words in chapter 1, verse 1, that declare the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the, the gospel is the story of God who, who, from the fall, moves to redeem humanity back to himself by way of a human. To redeem fallen mankind back to himself by way of a man. The mystery begins to unfold as soon as Genesis chapter 3, and by way of his own covenantal loyalty through the pages of Scripture, he eventually moves to call Abraham to himself, creating a people, forming a nation, and through that nation, the nation of Israel, would come the promised offspring, the promised seed. So what we have in Mark's account is, is not the start of the gospel, but the beginning of the gospel appearing in person. That's the beginning of the gospel in Mark. The gospel begins in Genesis. 
But this is the gospel appearing in person, the earthly ministry of Jesus, who is the Christ, the royal anointed one, the son of the living God. Now, throughout this gospel, uh, Mark indirectly raises the question, is the one I'm presenting to you, is he the one you ought to trust? Consider, is he the one you ought to commit yourself to? And then, scene after scene, he answers with an emphatic, yes, he is. Now, we've heard the demonic realm as the first to rightly and frightfully recognize him as who he is. They were the first ones to recognize him. Those demons who spoke through the possessed, we know who you are, the son of the living God. Have you come to torment us before the time? We've seen Jesus cast out demons with the word of his mouth. We've seen him walking upon the surface of the Sea of Galilee. We've read where he, he calmed the waves and the winds with the word of his mouth. Immediately, it was calm. We've seen him transform a few loaves and, and a few fishes to feed thousands on two separate occasions. We've seen him heal the sick, the lame, the leprous. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him claim absolute assurance as to the identity, his identity is the second person of the Godhead. He is the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the Son of man. He was transfigured before the eyes of three of his disciples into radiant glory. We've seen him repeatedly trap the scribes and Pharisees in their own snare. The nets that they threw out, they were trapped, attempting daring to paint Jesus into a corner. We've heard him pronounce judgment upon the temple, upon apostate Judaism. Then all of the events of, of Passion Week, we've observed, reveal his absolute divine control. He's shown courage, authority, determination, all of which assures and reaffirms our faith in him as sovereign Lord. Thank you. Amen. That's right. This morning, we, we see the shocking contrast to everything that precedes this garden moment. As the passage before us shows us something about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, we see Jesus experiencing true agony of the soul. We see God's Christ in deep distress. We see the Son of God, God incarnate in great conflict and intense affliction. This is a fierce spiritual hurricane. And it's in contrast to the, the, the relative calm and serenity of the upper room just a couple hours prior to the moment that our brother just read about. Now, by way of review, as regards the Last Supper, which precedes this garden moment by just, I don't know, a couple hours, I suppose, 
Remember that there was a very particular scripted liturgy that accompanied that meal, the Passover meal, Israel's Passover meal. It would have appeared to any common Jew on that night in the upper room with Jesus that Jesus committed, committed a huge faux pas, a, 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 a liturgical blunder as regards the order of that meal. For on this night, um, four cups of wine were to be consumed with that the Passover meal. After Jesus broke bread and said, take, eat, this is my body, he took the third cup on that night and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. Saying, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new in the, in the kingdom. So there on that night, Jesus not only celebrated, but absolutely transformed Israel's Passover feast into the new covenant meal, into the Lord's Supper, into the meal of communion. And he left that fourth cup, that fourth cup, undrunk. And that was the cup that closed the dinner. It was the grand finale of the meal. He left it undrunk, in order that he might drink from another cup. But before he drinks of that cup, he foretold his 11 disciples that they will all abandon him. He cites Zechariah the prophet, I, Yahweh, God, will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will what? They'll scatter, they'll flee. A prophecy that they, the 11, self-confidently protest. Peter said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all said the same. Now, that self-assured statement was made while en route to the Mount of Olives where there was an orchard, a garden, called Gethsemane, which means oil press. Within that garden, there would have been a stone shelter that housed a press to extract oil from those olives by way of crushing them. So as we come into the garden, we will see the anguish of soul that Jesus faced there. The Son of Man, the Son of God. We will see the, the pressing and the crushing and the agony of his soul. Okay, this is very important as believers today. And I want us to recognize three aspects of this agony. Three things for us to see in the text before us this morning. The first is the reality of his agony. The reality of his agony. Secondly, we'll look at the reason for his agony. And then thirdly and finally this morning, we'll observe his response to the agony. So the reality of it, the reason for it, and his response to it. Agony, pressing, crushing of his own soul. And that is because, beloved, there, there's a tendency in considering Jesus as creator of all, king of kings, lord of lords, that he couldn't really be tempted to sin. 
that, that he couldn't really despair. After all, I mean, he is deity. You know, there's this, this thinking in some today that there was no real possibility for true internal wrestling or, or toil within himself. He's God. You know, that his weeping, for instance, at the tomb of Lazarus was some pious display intended to help us in our own poor, pitiable state as though it's some kind of benevolent act of empathy. Okay, that is, friends, that we, we, we have a tendency to deify the human nature of Jesus and to deny the full reality of his humanity. We do not want to make that mistake. This suffering is real. This pressure is real. So scripture does not allow for any of this nonsensical thinking that Jesus didn't really suffer deep within or that he was not really tempted to sin because he was. So this lonely, distressing scene fully tells us the true humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we are eavesdropping here on the most excruciating, intense prayer ever uttered by human lips. And during it, we, we, we see and we hear him recoil from drinking this cup, asking that it might pass as, as he's being pressed in the garden that bears the name for pressing, Gethsemane. showing us, friends, that there was nothing in his humanity to blunt his emotions. There was nothing in his humanity to numb his feelings. This experience is real. So let's notice and let's look at the reality of this agony as it comes to the surface. Verse 32, and they went to, the place called, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, when he says sit, this has much more to, to do than, with, than just mere posture. You know, as the, you know, sit here and I'll be back, don't worry. It's not what he's saying. He, he's saying sit on the alert. Sit, wait, be on the alert, participate with me. I'm going to pray. Sit in attentiveness, sit here in support of me. And then the eight are left sitting. Notice verse 33, and he took with him Peter, James, and John. Now we've seen throughout this gospel account that these three, um, during pivotal moments of ministry, are, are taken in with Jesus. They're known as the inner circle of the Lord's disciples. They experience the resurrection of a little girl back in chapter 5. They experience the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ, right from flesh to glory on the mount where, where Moses and Elijah appeared. Peter, you know, he wants to make three tabernacles. Let's sell tickets to this thing. We'll have people pass through the kingdom. No. No. 
It was for a moment that his glory shone in that way is a preview of what's to come. His face shone like the sun. Moses and Elijah were there to, to discuss what? His impending death as preordained in eternity past. So he takes the inner core with him, and notice in verse 33, he, become, he becomes very distressed. Very distressed. This describes someone who's in the grip of shuddering horror as they, whatever it is they're facing in the future. Shuddering horror. You know that cup of wine in the upper room? He said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant shed for you. It's about to be realized in deep, dark suffering in this garden. The truth of that cup. My blood shed for you. So now, on the verge of finalizing his messianic mission, his suffering, it's not something he didn't expect, beloved. He's been foretelling this all along the way since Galilee. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise the third day. Again and again, he's reminded them of this. But now, this suffering, it's at hand. It's imminent. So its immediacy is a weight that falls upon him. I heard someone use this illustration once, and I, I think it's fair to use it. It's kind of like, um, I'm going to have major surgery in three months. So you can talk about it. I'm going to have surgery. But on that morning, on that morning, you fasted all night. On that morning, it's a little different, isn't it? Hmm, they put me under. Hmm, might not come out again. That's the reality. That's about as close as we can come to identifying like the immediacy of something. This foreknown. This is altogether different. His suffering is at hand. And we'll see what that is. And he said, verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. These words echo Psalm 116, verse 3. Look at them. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish, of the, the anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. So here's Jesus, filled with anguish, trouble, sorrow, the God-man. Deeply burdened. You know, Luke says that he was in agony. Luke also tells us that his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Now remember, this is a rather chilly night because in just a few hours, Peter will be warming himself by a fire. Here's Jesus profusely sweating. He's overcome with intense stress, anxiety. We, we know that the capillaries in his brow began to burst before the crown of thorns was ever placed upon his head. Remember how imagine how tender his brow would have been after that. He's deeply stressed. So that's the reality of his agony. Let's look at the reason. And going a little, a little further, verse 35, a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
Now, Jesus isn't initiating some prayer meeting, beloved, with his disciples in the garden this night. He told them to remain and watch because there's no prayer in all of history that was ever prayed with such intensity, agony, or anguish than this prayer. This is a solo prayer. He alone could and would only pray this prayer. No one else can pray this. You can't join in with this prayer with our Lord. He's the only human being in all of history qualified to perform this task. Father, Abba, Abba. All things are possible. So he goes on along, alone to pray alone, but he didn't want to be alone. He didn't want to be alone. He wanted his friends there. He wanted his friends nearby. Now, this is a place that Jesus often went to pray, John tells us in his gospel, the Garden of Gethsemane. This night, it was a very lonely prayer. That's one aspect of prayer. It was a lonely prayer. This is the kind of prayer, beloved, lonely prayer, that brings with it the temptation to quit. This deep struggle, this, this, this temptation to throw your hands up and to give in, to give up, is lonely. But it was also humble, very humble prayer. Luke says that he knelt. Mark tells us he's on his face. He fell to the ground. And it's Matthew who tells us he fell on his face. He kneels, he falls, he falls on his face. So it's humble prayer. It's, all, it's also filial prayer or familial prayer, family prayer. This is the, the, the prayer of a son. Abba, Father. Intimacy. Remove this cup, if possible. So here we see the, the, these pleas pouring out and we see the, the human nature of Jesus on display, deeply stressed, deeply troubled this night. You know, throughout the pages of history, we read about courageous men and women who are martyred, who are martyred for, for the name of Christ, and you read how they just confidently and calmly marched to their death with no apparent fear. You know, they go out singing a hymn. Why such agony with Jesus? Answer, because he's not a martyr. Jesus is no martyr. It wasn't death that he was facing that provoked this deep sorrow of the soul. It was the reason for his death that provoked this anguish. The kind of death he would die that no human being has ever nor will ever suffer. And we're not talking crucifixion. Thousands of men were crucified. It's not the brutal crucifixion that he fears, beloved, but it's what goes with it. It's what goes with it. Jesus didn't die as a martyr on the cross. He was about ready to die as a substitute a substitutionary sacrifice. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking Jesus was a martyr. Don't ever use that word in line with the Savior. Amen? He's not a martyr. So it was not the wrath of, of the corrupt 
hands of the Sanhedrin. It wasn't the, the, the wrath of the hands of Roman soldiers that our Lord Jesus fears. That's not the cup that he abhors. That's not the cup he's asking might pass if it's the Father's will. This agony goes far beyond physical torture and death. He, in the garden, is beginning to taste. He's beginning to experience the unmitigated cup that is full of the wrath of God against sin and sinners. He doesn't just judge sin. How can you judge sin without sinners? Because only sinners sin. <laughs> Old Testament language of this cup goes like this. A cup large and deep. A cup of ruin. A cup of desolation to make you stagger. A goblet of my wrath, says the Lord. You think God's serious about sin? You think God's serious about sinners who sin? And all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Serious. And here's Jesus in the garden that night. Father, I do not want to drink that cup. If it's possible, and all things are possible with you, Father, let this cup pass. Jesus is facing the indescribable experience of feeling himself God-forsaken. Did God forsake Jesus? You better believe it. He, he fears that the light of the Father's countenance is going to be turned away and that darkness is going to descend upon him and that darkness represents hell. God's wrath, that's what hell is, God's wrath. This cup, friends, is his assignment. This cup is his role. This cup is his responsibility. This cup, to be drunk, is his messianic mission. It's his saving work. So you're going to tell me that Jesus didn't struggle in his humanity in the garden that night? That just he just pulls in and breaks through a little sheer wall to pull from his deity to strengthen him? No. Fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit he was in his humanity, trusting in his Father. So his agony is real. We see the reason for it here. The reason is God's wrath. He's beginning to taste it. And then finally, notice his response in the midst of all of this agony. Verse 36, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He says here, if possible, Father, let it pass. If possible, yet, 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 the only thing worse is that if I fail to do your will, if it's possible, if there's no other way. Father, if there's no other way, Abba, if there's no other way, if it's not possible, give me that cup. Give me that cup. Verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping. And he said, 
to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, watch and pray that, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is, is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. If you're, if you're battling over someone or something in your life, and you're praying repetitiously, that's okay. That's what he did. That's what he did. So notice um, Jesus, in verse 37, he rebukes them, and in verse 38, he instructs them. He says, watch and pray that you may not, that you may not fall into temptation. Lesson here for us. Lesson. Prayer and watchfulness are the gatekeepers of temptation. The gatekeepers of temptation. Prayerful, attentive, that is prayerful and attentive in God's word, keeping close, keeping close our walk with the Lord in intimacy, watching, praying, our gatekeepers. Prayer and devotion, watchfulness will guard you from falling prey to temptation. Is it a sin to be tempted? Thank you. No, of course not. Jesus was tempted. You will be tempted. I will be tempted. You have been tempted, and you will continue to be tempted. He says here, two gatekeepers with regard to temptation. Prayer and watchfulness shut the door where this kind of temptation can enter. So if you don't pray and you're not watchful in the word, you'll fall prey to temptation when it comes because it will come a knocking every day. And here's the temptation to inattentiveness, spiritual laziness. Here's slumber. Spiritual drowsiness, friends, is dangerous. It's dangerous. And the result is to, to forget and doubt God's word, to forget and doubt God's word, that's number one, and then eventually to deny association with Jesus. And that's what's on the horizon for these men who are not watching and praying. It's hours away. The spirit, he says, is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, just this physical body is weak, amen? It's weak. I mean, it has to be fed, it has to be watered, it has to be nurtured, it needs to rest, it needs to sleep. It's no small task fighting sleep, amen? When you're exhausted, that's no small task. I'm looking for the sleepers. We don't have any today. In Scripture that the flesh has much more to do than just this, this physical body, right? It's a principle of our, our, our sinful mortality. And we read about it in Romans chapter 7 where, where, where Paul says, you know, I set my mind to do one thing and I end up doing something else. We can all identify with that. Amen? Yeah. The flesh, or the, 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 the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. It's weak. You know, Jesus taught his disciples. He taught them how to pray. He said what? Lead us not into 
temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us, Lord, not into to testing. Lead us not into testing, into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. And here, Jesus practices what he taught them, what he's been teaching them. This is what he's doing. The very place where, again, John tells us that he often came to pray. This night, we see him persevering in prayer. He prays three times. Let this cut pass. Persevering prayer. This is earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. He prayed fervently. He prayed soulfully. Let it pass. But finally, it was a prayer of resignation. A prayer of resignation. Acceptance. Yet not what I will, but what you will to the Father. So desperately wanting there to be another way, the answer would be no. Three times he begs, he pleads, and the answer is no. The only one, friends, the only one without sin is about to be destroyed by the Father's hands. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Father to, to crush him. This is the cup he was sent to drink. God's wrath, to be crushed, the perfect one who would be crucified outside of Jerusalem on a garbage heap between two thieves. Why? Galatians 3.13 tells us, to redeem us, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He became a curse. That's the cup he came to drink. Cursed by God. So imagine... This is, this is a moment of intense temptation in the garden. Can you imagine what Satan is doing, what Satan is whispering in his hear, ear on this night? Cannot. Remember when Jesus was publicly baptized? You have the Son of God standing in the water, God the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well... Actually, he said, you are my Son in whom I am well pleased when he was baptized. And then the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted, tested in the wilderness for 40 days. And Satan came. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, jump off the temple mount and into the Kidron Valley. His angels will take charge over you. And in a moment of time, he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. Bow down to me, and I will give you all these now, for they have been delivered up to me. And every time Jesus replied with, it is written. And then we read in Luke's account, we read, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There is no more opportune time than this in the garden. Imagine. Here at the end of his mission, as he faces the apex of his mission, we can only imagine the hideous words that Satan must have spoken into his ear that night. 
as he was face down on the ground. Imagine. It would not be unlike what he did in the original garden in Eden, where he came to Adam and Eve and tempted them to doubt God's word, hath God really said, and to doubt God's love. You won't surely die. As a matter of fact, God knows that in the day that you eat of that tree that he has forbidden, you will then be what? Like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. Implication, he doesn't love you. And here, Jesus being tempted like this, you can imagine he doesn't love you. He wants to crush you. Satan knows the scripture. To crush you? To crush you? Satan always works, friends, to rob us of the assurance of God's love for us. So what he tries to get us to focus on is the darkness of the providence, the darkness of a particular circumstance. So that in the midst of the darkness of the circumstance, the temptation comes, you know, if he loved you, you wouldn't be in this mess. If he loved you, you wouldn't be facing this kind of trouble. Truth or a lie? That's a lie from the pit of hell. And imagine what Jesus is going through. You'll never face this kind of providence, not even close. So we can only imagine the arrows of accusations fired, fiery darts of accusation being thrown at the Lord on this night. Look at you wallowing in the dirt. You're pathetic. Look at your disciples over there. They're unfaithful, selfish, prideful, and they're sleeping. Let me tell you this, Judas is on his way with soldiers, with torches and swords, and as soon as he appears, all of these guys sleeping, they're going to turn tail, and they're going to run away. Give it up, Jesus. Give it up. Imagine. You know who that is? The dragon, the serpent of old, a, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. A liar. You know what I love? In, in the movie The Passion, Mel Gibson's The Passion. You remember that movie? It's hard to watch. The movie opens with this scene. Jesus pleading with the Lord in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mel Gibson, at this point in the narrative, portrays Jesus as getting up from this agonizing, sweaty, bloody, full of anxiety experience, only to stomp on the head of a serpent that's slithering around in that garden. You remember that? He gets up and stomps on the head, depicting, of course... God's promise to Satan in the Garden of Eden immediately after the fall. Genesis 3.15. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. I cite it regularly. I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's that? 
That's the promise of Satan's defeat, and it's the promise of, of, of the seed, Jesus, the promised one. It's a promise of his victory, but only through suffering. Only through suffering. You know, much of Christianity today, unfortunately, defines everything in terms of, you know, this is modern evangelicalism. It defines everything in terms of, you know, triumph, victory, and breakthrough language. You hear that? I'm about ready to experience a breakthrough. Triumph. Victory. But many of them have never entered into the reality of what the gospel fully conveys. This. This. With Jesus in deep agony. With Jesus um, overwhelmed with temptation. And here, where he's beginning to taste what is coming? The dregs in the cup. God's wrath. On human evil. As a substitutionary sacrifice. So, yes, we, we rejoice in resurrection victory, do we not? Of course, we don't leave Jesus on the cross. We rejoice in the resurrection victory, but there is no resurrection without this suffering. There is no resurrection without him suffering like this. And the same is true for all who are in Christ. In this world, you will suffer tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. That's right. That's right. Let me break the intense moment with a couple humorous insights that I gained this week from a Christian satire group that, that makes these funny videos that, that kind of mock um, ridiculous evangelical thinking of our day. And there's, there's this video that these fellas made that portrays um, historic Christian paintings of martyrs in the midst of execution. You've probably seen some of these. The famous painting of Peter, he's being nailed upside down on a cross, ready to be crucified. The history tells us he was crucified upside down. There's a famous uh, painting of um, Stephen being stoned on his knees. There's a famous painting of John the Baptist's head being brought on a silver platter to Herodias. Now, what they do, it's funny, in, in the video, they, they make the mouths move of these that are about to be executed, and, and they're speaking. And these makers of the video have them, um, as they're being executed, have them quoting um, Joel Osteen tweets, <laughs> like real tweets. So as John the Baptist's head is being delivered on a silver platter, he speaks and he says this, don't speak defeat. Instead, declare, I'm blessed, I'm strong, I'm healthy. This is going to be a great year. <laughs> and then Stephen, on his knees, in the midst of being stoned, says this, his lips move, and he's quoting a, a real tweet of, of Osteen, and it says this, people have a right to their opinion, but victorious people have the right to ignore what's negative. And then a man gripping a stone over the head of Stephen says this, I'm going to throw my opinion at your head. <laughs> All that to say, the abundant life, does Christ promise us abundant life? Absolutely. 
But the abundant life he, he promises is not felt in, in its fullness in this life for his followers. It leaks into this life. It leaks into this life. There's no doubt about it. But abundant life has more to do with longevity and permanence in his consummated kingdom that we're promised. For we already have seats in heaven. That's the longevity. That's the permanence. In this life, you will suffer. And if our Savior had to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf, do you think we'll not suffer as we pass through? Think again. Don't misinterpret what the Bible teaches, what Jesus taught about abundant life now. Oh, we have it. But it has more to do with longevity and permanence because we're in Christ, the one who suffered. So you don't listen to tweets, nonsense like that. Some say, my God is a God of love, right? They'll say, my God is a God of love. I don't believe in a God of wrath. Friend, let me tell you, honey, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot. My God's a God of love. He, he, I don't have a God of wrath. Well, then you don't have the true God because God said that the cross is his striking post. I will strike the shepherd. Yahweh, I will strike my shepherd, my son, the Messiah that I have sent. See, the cross, friends, is the only place. We just sung it this morning. It's the only place where God's grace-filled love and holy, and holy justice meet. It's the cross. His love and his hate meet at the cross. His justice and his forgiveness meet at the cross. The cross is communicated by many unfortunately, as an expression of God's love where Jesus commits himself in martyr form, you know, as an example. That's not the cross. It's a sign of God's love, indeed, amen? Most certainly it is. It's an expression of his love. And Jesus did indeed commit himself, but not as an example, not as a martyr, but as a substitution is a sacrifice to be condemned in your place. Now, if you're going to preach the cross, make sure you preach the cross is a post of substitution. He provides substitution to propitiate and expiate our sins. Now, remember this, propitiation has to do with the, the vertical. What's propitiated? God's justifiable wrath Jesus propitiated, that's vertical. Expiation has to do with the removal of our sins as far as the east is from the west. He provides both on the cross. Propitiation and expiation. So it was God's love that, that, that he committed his son to the cross and Jesus committed himself along with the Father to that cross. Amen? Watch now in rapid fire. Some verses. Romans 3.25. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, 
and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all what? All sinned. So because we all bear the fallen sinful nature of Adam, the consequence for all of us is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So, beloved, just as in the garden called Eden, where Adam's disobedience, where, where he said, not your will, but mine, where his disobedience ruined us, so too it's in this garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the the, the, the place of pressing and crushing the obedience of the second Adam restores us. Amen? I think uh, D.A. Carson puts it best when he said this, and I quote, in the first garden, not your will but mine changed paradise into a desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. End quote. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, yeah. All because the father who heard the plea of his beloved son's prayer answered, no. No. It cannot pass. It will not pass. Now, beloved brothers and sisters, I know that sometimes um, you may be frustrated in your prayer life and some of you have communicated to me over the years, you know, I've been pounding heaven's door, and yet God does not seem to answer my prayer. Truth is, friends, he does hear you. He hears you, and he does answer, but many times his answer is no. And we misinterpret no as no answer. not Jesus. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. All right, then, verse 40. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You know what? Neither would I. How about you? Don't laugh at the disciples. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no hint of bitterness in his words. There is sorrow, though. There is sorrow. I asked you to watch. I asked you to pray. You slept. But you know what? He didn't need them. He wanted them, but he, he didn't need them. 
because he was prepared to purchase your redemption alone. Alone. They couldn't help with that. So he announces the time of betrayal is at hand. In other words, I've accepted my father's cup. The time's at hand. I will drink this cup. I will drink this cup. And then he goes on to, to willingly embrace the penalty for your sin and mine. Beautiful. Let's close with this. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. There it is. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, part of what's in mind of the writer of Hebrews certainly is the agony of Jesus in this garden. Notice, linked, it's linked to his priesthood. Okay, don't miss that in this Hebrews account. It's linked to his priesthood. Notice in verse 7, offered up, offered up, that's priestly language. That's priestly language. Israel's priests offered up sacrifices on behalf of God's elect. On behalf of Israel, his elect nation, his elect people. Notice verse 8. Being made perfect, okay, that's Old Testament language used to describe the consecration of a priest. He's consecrated perfectly. That is his priestly duty. And Jesus offered up not a lamb. He offered up himself, the lamb, the lamb of God, killing our curse by becoming a curse. He became a curse by way of his shameful death. Amazing grace, amen? How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, and now I see. You see this for what it is. Amen. So in Gethsemane, notice, Jesus cried out with loud cries. The Father, we're told here, he heard him, and yet he didn't deliver him from death. He delivered him through death delivered through death, and in his death, he will also deliver us fully and finally. That's why we read we will not taste what? Death. Your body will die. You won't taste death. Be immediately present with the Lord because of his work on our behalf. Because he gave himself absolutely, he gave himself unreservedly in obedience to the will of his father, drinking that cup to its bitter dregs, and as I said earlier, dregs that speak of the pain and pangs of hell. That was the cross. So because Jesus... Our great high priest 
is the source of eternal salvation, verse 9, right there in Hebrews, goes on to say in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 25, that he always lives to make intercession for all who are in Christ. By way of reminder, intercession is not prayer. Intercessory prayer is prayer. And we read Jesus' intercessory prayer of John 17, which has eternal ramifications for you. He prayed that for you. But I don't believe he's in heaven praying for us right now. He's interceding for us. Intercession is mediation. Mediation is representation. And to represent means to represent. And because we're in, in Christ, we're no longer presented being merely an Adam. We are represented being in the last Adam. Jesus, the Christ, Son of the living God. All because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, where? In him and only in him. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through me. Do you know him? Be sure you know him. Not just up here in your head, but deep down in your soul. That means you embrace him by faith, fully entrusting yourself to him, believing upon him that he is the only way, and the scriptures declare that you too will be saved from what? God's wrath. He'll pass over you in judgment by the blood of the Lamb. Father, we do thank you we thank you that your son, our Lord, cried out that night, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, yet not what I will, but what you will. Lord and God, please deal with our hearts, we pray, by your word, and show us the wonder of your love. In Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen.